0: Good morning, everyone. I only have plans for 4 o'clock this afternoon, so I hope you're ready. (laughs) We have snacks and water at the back. (laughs) Um, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 2. Acts 2. And before we get there, um, so we've been, we've kind of started a series on Acts. I don't know how long it will continue for, how far we'll get, how it's going to look like, but it's an interesting journey. So if you would like to read Acts, I encourage you to do so. It's a fantastic book. There's lots of weighty things in there to discuss and talk through and meditate on and ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding with. So I encourage you to do that over the next few weeks. Um, And then just kind of ask Marina, can you come here, please? So Marina came to me this morning. She's from the Ukraine. And she just asked if we can please pray for her and the nation, but also for her family. And am sure sharing that some of her family members, they haven't heard from them. They're not sure where they are. And um, there's just a lot of turmoil, obviously, going on at the moment. And I think with what's happening in the world at the moment, a lot of the Ukraine has been forgotten. And so we, can we, you're going to stand proxy. We're going to pray for you, but also for the nation as well. All right. So can we stand up? Stretch out our hands. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Father, we just want to thank you for Marina. We want to thank you for her life. We want to thank you for bringing her to this nation and to the rivers, Father. I pray, Lord, that yeah, as, as she stands proxy for the nation of Ukraine, Father God, would you bring your peace. Father God, that's all we can pray for is your peace and your salvation, Father God, to come and flood that nation, to flood the people that are there. Father, I pray, Lord, that just for peace within the country, but also peace within every single heart, Father. I pray for families that have lost loved ones, Father, God. I pray for families that are, that are hurting and battling and confused and unable to find those that are close to them, Father. I pray would you comfort them. Holy Spirit, would you rest upon Marina and her family, Father. I pray, Lord, where they are looking for family, Father. I pray, Lord, that they would be found. And I pray, Lord, that you would come and bless her now, Father. Bless her family, the hand of protection upon them, Father. And Father, we just cry out to you for peace, peace and salvation, Father God, for this nation. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would come in and move swiftly. We just bless you, Father, and pray, would you come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Can't So Acts 2. So we, we spoke about Acts chapter 1 from verse 1 to 11 where it talks about the Holy Spirit will come. And when he comes, he'll give us power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Shortly after that, the disciples decide that they need to replace Judas, who unfortunately had, had um, killed himself. And so they were looking for a replacement because they believed that Jesus had called 12, so he needed 12 to send out. If you want to see how they um, chose a new leader, they literally cast lots. So they chose three people. They threw some dice and said, you are our new leader. <laughs> Fortunately, that's not how we do things today with everything. Um, but it's through gifting and um, laying on of hands. And by testimony, I'm sure, pretty sure they were pretty solid. Um, and then after that, it talks about in Acts chapter 2 about the day of Pentecost. And it says, when they had arrived in, chap- in verse 1, They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then we're going to jump ahead to Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and it says and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and held all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings distributing the need- proceeds to all as 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 any had need and day by day attending the temple together Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you that we can come t- together this morning and we can look at your word. We can see what you did and read the testimonies and the just incredible encounters and stories of what happened through your spirit. And Father God, I thank you, Lord, that this is not something that ended 2,000 years ago, but something that is alive today as well, Father. And that we can stand on these things, and we can declare them over us, over this nation, over this region, Father God. That you can come in power and might, and that you can change this nation. So, Father, I pray that you be blessed and honored and glorified through what we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pentecost, Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection and 10 days after Jesus' ascension. It was something that was known as the Festival of Weeks, and it was held seven Sundays after Passover. So if you're wondering what it was, there's the answer. So we had Passover, which is when Jesus died and then was resurrected. Forty days after that, Jesus ascended into heaven. And then 10 days after that, there was this festival of the seven Sundays And so, Acts two starts with them all being all together, and I think this just speaks again about this thing of Christianity. And I've said this a few times, and I'll continue to say it: is that it is not something that we do in isolation. It's not something we can do by ourselves. It starts off by saying, when Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and then later on it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. All came upon every soul. All who believed were together. They attended the temple together. They broke bread in each other's homes. They had favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number. And so there's this thing of constantly being together. The gospel is for every single person. The gospel is for people to come together. It should not be a place where there's division and strife and disharmony. It's a place where there's unity together. It says, despite my culture, despite my race, despite my background, despite my current job, despite my status or anything like that, we can come together because we have Jesus. And this is how Acts 2 starts. It says they were all together. It starts with them all being together in one place. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and he pours himself out and he gives us this gift of new tongues. So much so, that the people on the street became aware of what was happening and accused him of being drunk, and once that happens, Peter goes on to preach the first gospel message of the New Testament, and he goes on to talk to the people about what Jesus had done, likening what Jesus had done through the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and pretty quickly, in one day, they went from 120, they were meeting in the upper room, to 3,000 people being saved, that's pretty impressive, that's That's a powerful gospel message, and it's just incredible to see what Jesus can do through the gospel and through someone that's obedient and has the courage to stand up and declare the gospel, and then we come into Acts 2 verse 42, which has been stirring in my heart for a while, and I've spoken about it a few times over the last few months, just as what what is it that God wants to do in the church? I think we've spoken quite a lot about God just breaking down this this institutionalized idea of church. This thing of we have to have a hierarchy, we have to have a business model, we have to have this plan. That is not the church. That is not what God came to do through the church. The church is a group of people coming together, having everything in common and praising God, worshiping God, acknowledging who He is, learning and growing together. It's not about raising funds, and it's not about all these other things that we've made Christianity. It's not about all those things. It's about pointing people to Jesus. That is what it is about. (coughs) So I'm going to come back in there with with verse 42, and it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and to the prayers. And so the first thing it says is that they were devoted. So, as I've said, there were 120 people praying, the Holy Spirit came down in power and might, Peter preached the first gospel message that we can read, and 3,000 people get saved, and immediately it says, and they were devoted. I think that's quite powerful. You see, this word for devotion is a Greek word called proskiteria, That's not right, eh? Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Um, And basically, it means to adhere to one, to be his adherent, to be devoted or constant to one. I don't know about you, but that still sounds like Greek to me. And so, the Strong's Concordance says this. It says it means to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of of despite difficulty to devote oneself to, to keep on, to be persistent in. And so this devotion was a persistent, persevering, sacrificial, and constant thing that was happening. This devotion was not because of a list of requirements imposed on them, and it was not to try and earn their salvation, or a ticket to heaven, or an escape from hell. It was born out of a gratitude and an awe of what Jesus had done for them. They had just heard a gospel message that had changed their life. And this this intense devotion came upon them where they made an effort to come together. They made an effort to pursue Jesus. See, Peter's message set a foundation of what was to come. And so when we read Acts 42, yes, that is not the exact model of church that we will do today. Context and culture is a little bit different. But it it sets a good baseline for what we can do. When we trust in the Holy Spirit and we lean into his leading, this is just the baseline of what Jesus can do with us. And I think while just praying through this over the last few weeks is that one of the things that we've come to discover and to observe over the last few years is there's been an intense loss of devotion to God in the church today. And so this message is for those that are saved, those that call themselves Christians, those that call themselves children of God. I did a, a bit of research this morning as I was waiting to come to church and the statistics are quite scary. The rate of in-person attendance to churches post pre and post COVID has dropped by something like 28% worldwide. More people are looking to attend online services even now that they're allowed to attend in person. The problem with this model of church is that it isolates people. You can... Learn a lot and you can grow while sitting in your living room. But it's coming together that something happens. There's fruit that happens and we'll look at that a bit later. Two weeks ago we had the guy from Alpha just share a presentation of what his research shows what people are saying the church will look like in 10 years time. I'm going to not lie to you. I was greatly saddened and also a little bit offended that people could think that way. Um, A lot of it was that church will be mostly online. The church will be, online church will be universal. So every person from all around the world can log into a system and attend a service anywhere, anytime. It was a model that was centered around convenience. A model that was centered around comfort. A model that was centered around the ease for people to access the gospel. I think the scary part about that, and I've said this before as well, is that the tactic of the enemy is to try and isolate us. See, the problem, uh, we're from Africa, the south of Africa. Uh, It's a big place, if you don't know. And one of the things that I remember learning at school in one of the subjects was just the hunting methods of prey and predators, or the predators and the prey. That is the right way around, right? Yes. And so when you've got a flock of zebra, I think that's the right word, a herd of zebra, that's the one. <laughs> I didn't do that well at school. Please don't judge me. That's <laughs> why so I married an English teacher. Um, <laughs> but what will happen is when you have a herd of zebra, zebra, I can't believe I said zebra, zebra in a field, or in, a, in the felt as we call it there, the lions, when they come, will look for the one that's isolated or the one that's injured. And what will happen is when they chase the herd, the herd will run, and the one that's isolated is defenseless. It doesn't have the protection of the herd around it. And so what happens, the lion comes. And what does, Matthew, what does John 10.10 say? The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a roaring lion that comes to look for the weak and the injured and the isolated. And so if the enemy can get us isolated, what ends up happening is we become vulnerable. There was a guy, Mark Altringham, who unfortunately has passed away since. But he used to say, the enemy will come. When you're bored, angry, lonely, or tired. Because that's normally when you're isolated. When you're bored, it's because there's not much happening around, so idle minds find things to do. When you're angry, you're not making clear and conscious decisions that are going to bring benefit and good. When you're lonely, it's easy to you isolate it so the enemy can come in. And when you're tired, you can't make really good decisions when you're just really tired. And so there's this thing where we've got to be so careful to not allow ourselves to become isolated. There's this thing of coming together. It's the reason why in Acts chapter 2, I think it mentions coming together or people together or fellowship. I think it was 13 times in one chapter where it just says they were together. They were praying, fellowship. They held everything together in accord. They met house to house. There's was constant coming together because there's something powerful in coming together. There's protection. I sometimes cycle because it's fun, and one of the things with cycling is if you're in a group of cyclists, they have this thing that we call drafting. And so what happens is you've got say 20 people. If you are near the middle to the back, you ride behind everyone else, and the the people in the front break the wind resistance for you. And so you might be cycling 43 kilometres an hour, but you're only putting in 24 kilometres per hour effort because it, it becomes easy for you. The resistance and the pull of the people in front of you just, kind of just pulls you along naturally. As soon as you come out from that draft, that slipstream, you hit that wind resistance, and suddenly you have to work at 50 kilometers an hour effort to try to keep up that speed, because you're now going at, against that resistance. And it's the same when we are in the fellowship of believers, is that when we are together, there's a protection that happens. There's this thing of, coming together that when you serve and love other people, you pull other people with you. It makes it easier for us to move forward as a family, as a community of people. <clears throat> but it takes devotion. When you're in that slipstream, you've still got to work. You've still got to come in there. You've still got to make sure that you're with the group. If you fall behind, it is so difficult to catch up again. It's about being are giving intense effort to stay there. That despite difficulty, we devote ourselves to God. And so the problem that I have and the offense that I take to this prediction of the future church is that it becomes about convenience and comfort. It's about when I want to attend church. Well, I don't feel like going at this time because I'm tired, so I'll go online later on. It becomes about comfort. Well, The chairs are a little bit hard, so I'd rather sit on my sofa at home. Or I actually just don't want to get out of my PJs, so I'm just going to stay at home and watch church. It's about where I want to do it. I don't feel like driving. The traffic's too much. And so it's so much easier to just stay alone. The problem here is I. It becomes about me. We used to sing this song as a joke. It's all about me, Jesus, Jesus. And all this is for me, and it's the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. It was a parody of a song that says, it's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. See, the problem today is that too many people are devoted to I, and not enough are devoted to the great I am. And there's power in that. There's power in saying, you know what, I'm going to be devoted to God only. We've, re- we've removed the big G God from our hearts, and we've put the small G God of I in his place. We've kept him close enough to be around for when we need him, when it suits us, when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, but we would never actually allow him to take his rightful place again. We don't apply that intense effort of keeping him there. We have to be intentional in doing that. See, when we are devoted to God and we do what it says in Matthew 6.33, which says to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, we keep God on the throne of our hearts and we acknowledge him as king. See, we spoke about this, I think, last year. We looked at what it means to be in the kingdom. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We spent quite a bit of time on Matthew 6.33. And it says, when we acknowledge God as king in our lives and we allow the kingdom of God to come in, is that we give him our allegiance. When we say, God, you are king, we come under his alignment. And this means that his causes become my causes. His heart becomes my heart. His ways become my ways. His will becomes my will. And I align myself to do whatever it is that is needed to fulfill my allegiance to him. I was talking to one of my clients about the movie Braveheart over the last week, and I was just reminded that when you have knights or people coming under a leader or ruler that is declaring a war or a fight, there's something that happens. Firstly, you're not going to fight for someone you don't trust, love, or believe in. You're not going to fight for someone that you can't give allegiance to. And so when the knights and the army would come together, one thing is they would pledge allegiance to the king or the queen or the leader of the army because there had to be a submission that had to happen. After that, the army and the knights or whoever was fighting, they wouldn't just sit around and do nothing, playing thumb wars or UNO or anything like that. There was, they were intentional about, number one, training, keeping fit, working on the skills, the swordsmanship, or archery, if they're shooting archery thingies, bone arrows, Um, they would either be creating weapons or sharpening their weapons or preparing their weapons, preparing their armor, making there's no damage to their armor. Um, They would always be on alert. And if they were sleeping, someone else was on watch. They were positioning themselves to be ready at all times. What I enjoy about watching these old movies that, talk, that we see from like the 1800s and everywhere there was wars and fights and nights and stuff, is that in the camps, people were always ready. When you see the background actors, there's always people around a fire, warming up swords and beating them and sharpening them, and there's always someone fixing something here, and there's always someone looking after the horses and make sure they're ready. There's always people on the watch and the lookout around, and so everything works. To fulfill what is needed to do what the king has asked them to do, and so there 's a constant watching and waiting that happens and it 's the same with our Christian walk is that we have to be on the lookout, we have to be prepared and i 'm going to look at this a little bit later, but one of the things is that we have to keep working at our salvation. See in Luke verse nine to twenty four or matthew sorry luke nine twenty four matthew ten thirty nine same verse it says Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we are called to sacrifice on account of Christ, for Christ, not to carelessness. And so this should stretch us to think beyond our instinct to pursue pleasure and comfort. You see, our devotion is something that takes intense effort. Devotion sometimes, and most times, will take sacrifice. Devotion will, despite difficulty, break through those things. And we have got to be persistent in this. It is an active thing that we have to do. And so, in the same way as the soldiers constantly do things to be prepared for war, we do things as Christians that prove and show our devotion to Christ. Christ. And there's two things I want to look at before we go into this thing of devotion. Because to fully understand devotion, we need to understand legalism, which is the absence of grace. And we've got to understand licentiousness, which is the abuse of grace. And so there's two things that I want to look at this morning with that. So legalism, it's a nice little Christian word. And legalism is when we follow a set list of rules or tick boxes to fulfill Uh, tick boxes to fulfill and meet the man-made standards of what it looks like to be a Christian. I know a lot of us come from different church backgrounds. Some of us would have sung an opening hymn, a communion hymn, an offering hymn, a closing hymn, a benediction. And there's a set structure. And when we ticked all those boxes and we had done things the right way, there was our work done for the day and we'd go home and forget about everything we've done. I remember I was talking to my clients and all my clients know that I'm a pastor and we work in the church. And they often will be like, so do you do this thing? And, like, and they, they go through the list of things that they understand Christianity to be. There's a checkbox of, oh, but do you do this? Do you do that? Do you celebrate this day and that day? Do you do this prayer and that prayer? And I was like, no, what I have is about relationship with Jesus. And so legalism says you must You must attend this meeting. You must do these things. You must read these scriptures. You must say these prayers. And the problem with this is that it is devoid of life. It's not spirit-led. It is man-led. It is done in our own strength. And the problem with all of this is that it puts puts our salvation in our hands, thinking that if we do enough things, if we do enough work, we can earn our salvation or we can make it better almost. The problem with this is that we end up listening to the voice of others and not to the voice of the Spirit. And this creates basically a country club, not a living, breathing bride of Christ. And that's the challenge, is to not fall into legalism. The other side of the coin is licentiousness, which is the abuse of God's grace. And this is when we lack any legal or moral restraints. This happens when we live in a broken understanding of grace and it becomes the scapegoat of our lives to do whatever we want to do. It says that we can do whatever makes us happy because of grace. We can have forgiveness and be okay with God. Basically, what this says is, you know, Jesus died for my sins. I'm saved. I can do all the things I want to do because I know that I can come back to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me and I'll be forgiven. The problem with this is that we start listening to our own voice. We chase our own comforts and our own convenience. When we live in licentiousness, we do the things that are spoken against in the Bible, where it says we get drunk, we sleep around, we skip church, we kick our dog, we swear. But it's okay because I'm saved. It's okay because Jesus will forgive me. And which is true, Jesus has forgiven us, and he will forgive you. But there's a responsibility in having grace that we have to walk out in our lives. We cannot just abuse grace. The problem with licentiousness is that we take advantage of our salvation. We abscond all responsibility for our salvation in the name of grace. The problem with this is that it creates a stagnant, immature bride that is ineffective and abuses the sacrifice of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10 says, I'm going to read all of it, is that it says, Although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the rule of the kingdom of the air, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of flesh and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. Being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Sorry, in Jesus Christ, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. See, the first three verses talk about the things that we were in. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We formerly lived according to this world's path according to the rule of the kingdom of the air, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. When we live in a place, we're still serving I, and we're not living as devoted children of God. But then Paul comes in and he says, but you have been saved through grace, by grace through faith. But there's a responsibility that we have in that. Later on he says, we do not have grace so that we might go back and sin." When we fully understand grace, we understand that we've been given grace so that we can be changed and transformed. And that is way more powerful. And because of our gratitude to God for saving us, we are devoted to him. As Nikki pointed out, part of our our mission and our vision is to become fully devoted followers of Christ. And so what does this look like? Firstly, it's understanding that we are saved by grace through faith and that we cannot be saved by our works. In James, we see that our works are an overflow of our faith. It's not something that saves us, but it's something that comes from us being saved. And so devotion is when we listen to the Spirit's voice. Just some scriptures about living licentiously or too much grace abusing that in 1 Peter 1 verse 15 to 16 it says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So we have been called to be set apart, to live differently to the way this world lives. In Romans eight thirteen it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, sorry, but by the Spirit, but by, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then in Galatians 5, verse 16, it says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And it's so important that we find this, you've got licentiousness on one side, you've got legalism on the other side, and there's this perfect thing in the middle of devotion. Where we, do not, where we know that there are things that we need to do, but it doesn't become law or legalism in our lives. And there are things that we know that we can do, but we don't do because we understand grace and responsibility with that. And this is really important. And the only way we will know this is through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus, before he went up, he says, I must go so that I can send my helper to you. And then we see in Acts 1 and 2 where the Holy Spirit was released and he came upon us. And so we are called to live devoted to God wholeheartedly, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and everything within us. And so when we do this, we find that balance between legalism and licentiousness, but the things that help us to be and live devoted to God, things that equip us for his work of the ministry. And so, just a few examples of the difference between all these things is one is coming to church and you guys all doing well because you're here. (laughs) Legalism says that you must be here every week at five to 10. No questions asked. Come rain, sunshine, sickness, health, death, everything you are here. That's legalism. Licentiousness says, Oh, if you feel like coming, you can come maybe like 30 minutes late. Who cares? No one's going to worry too much um or don't go at all stay at home and you can listen to the podcast this week that's okay but devotion says i get to go and fellowship with other believers i get to go and be devoted to the preaching and the teaching and to the worship i get to go and have communion with my brothers and sisters i get to go and do these things and so it's understanding that Christ died for us, and because we love him, and because we want what's in his heart, we come together, and we fellowship together, and we learn, and we grow together. Another one is, I don't know, give me an example, prayer. Legalism says, okay, you must pray this prayer, then this prayer, then this prayer, and then you can get this prayer, and then there's this one that's been written out, and you must pray six times a day, the end. Grace says, who needs to pray? We'll pray when I'm about to write an exam that Jesus will help me. I'll write, pray when I've got no money in my bank account and there's still two weeks left in the month. I'll pray when, when I need to. But devotion understands that prayer is my communication and my way with God. Where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That we say, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. Your name is above every other name. Understanding that that is my way to talk to Him. And it's something that I don't have to do. It's something that I want to do. Because I want to grow my relationship with the Father. Another example is legalism says that you must sit still. Don't move. You can't go to the bathroom during the message or during worship. You must... Keep your kids dead quiet. must be like church mouse, no noise. And you must sit still and take notes. Licentiousness says, uh, you know what, during the sermon I'll go get up and make a cup of coffee. I'll go do whatever I want. Um, During worship I'll come late. But devotion says, no, because I am devoted to Christ, because I will do every effort to learn and to grow, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to take in whatever I can. I get to come and worship in a corporate setting with those that I love to give glory and honor to God. There is power in that. And so sometimes we need a little bit of discipline in our lives. It sometimes looks like legalism, but it's actually devotion. It's something that will lead us to devotion. So come. this is not a rebuke, but it also is. Coming to church on time takes a little bit of discipline. It's not legalism. It's devotion. It's something that's going to set us up for life. I'm sorry for the people who made coffee this morning, but getting up to make coffee during a message is a little bit dishonoring to the person that has prepared a message. It's dishonoring to the worship team who have come during the week to prepare something. And so this isn't legalism, it's just discipline. It's about honoring those around us. And so th- there's this thing of okay, what is it? We are called to be disciplined people. We are to we are called to be countercultural. The world says do what you want take your time it's all about me whereas when we come together it's about God and it's about each other there's a reason Jesus gave us two commandments he said love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself through these two things all the laws are fulfilled but there's something about that it's about honoring God it's about honoring other people and this is so important And the beauty of all these things is that when they were devoted, so when they gave intense effort with persistence and sacrifice and through difficulty to teaching, to fellowship, to communion, to prayer, there was a fruit that came from that. Did I write it down? (laughs) It's a good question. The fruit of that is when they corporately came together, and submitted themselves to the teaching and to fellowship and to communion and to prayer, something beautiful happened. What happened was a reverential awe came upon people for God. I think I said this at our prayer meeting on Tuesday or Wednesday, but one of the things besides devotion that we've lost is the fear. We've also lost this fear of God. And it's not about being scared of God. It's about having this reverential awe. And what we see in Acts in the early church is that when they came together and they did these things, it says reverential awe came upon every soul. And so there's power in coming together in fellowship. The next thing that happened when they did this is that, sorry, I lost my place here. Reverential awe came. Then there were signs and wonders that happened. I think a large part of the church, we've lost that signs and wonders. But signs and wonders are not going to come before reverential awe. And it's very important that we understand that. We have to understand that there is a fear of God that is necessary in our lives. And reverential respect for God. And then later on what happened is after these things, there was just an incredible generosity that just bursted through the church. And it says that all who believed together held all things in common selling their possessions and belonging, distributing the proceeds to all as they had any need. And so when we have this corporate thing of coming together, there's an overflow and a release of generosity that happens. A lot of people say that, well, tithes was Old Testament. We don't have to worry about it today. But I tell you, if you go read Matthew through the the, um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus constantly goes back to the law and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he doesn't Take away what the law says. He builds and he expounds on it. He says, you've heard, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, well, if you just look at a woman wrong, take out your eye. And so there's this thing of Jesus takes it one step further. And so when it comes to generosity, let the 10th be your guide. We talk about tithes and offering. We say, well, it was a 10th biblical, sure. If you go look at the full tithe, it was about 23% actually. But Jesus, and throughout the whole New Testament, it's generosity. It says, give and you'll receive. We do not live in an economy of buying and selling. We live in a kingdom of sowing and reaping. So what you sow, you will reap. And it's difficult to wrap our minds around that sometimes because we live in a society in a world that says, well, if you buy, if you sell it, we'll buy it and you'll get money. Or if you go to work, you'll receive a salary. Fantastic. But Jesus says, what you sow, you will reap. What you are faithful with, he will reward. And so we've got to be good stewards of our finances as well. That's a side note. The second thing is that they were devoted to attending the temple daily together, breaking bread from home to home, and to praising God. And so, like I said, there's this thing of coming together. They were not isolated. They did not try and... Do this thing alone. There was this thing of coming together and breaking bread from home to home, meeting regularly to do this. Breaking bread. Some of the translations said they were eating meals. Some referred to communion. It could be both. But there's this thing about coming together around a table, and talking, and feasting, and celebrating who God is. And it says when they did that, this, and also, the, also another thing that was the praise to God. There was a praise for God. When they did this, the fruit was that they found favor with all the people. How amazing is that? It wasn't when they came together in a big setting like this that they found favor. It was when they went from home to a home that they found favor with people around them. <laughs> and then, lastly, in chapter two, it starts with, and they were all together in one place. And it ends off this chapter. I think the most beautiful thing is when they did these things, the Lord added to their number daily. This thing of coming together, about being devoted to God, being devoted to the things of God, being devoted to things that are going to help equip us and train us. It was in that moment that God added to their number because they were faithful with, with, with what God had given them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Now, Father, I just want to thank you that we can come and we can look at how you moved so powerfully through the church. And, Father, I thank you that even then, for the last 2,000 years, we can see how you have moved and you have grown the church, your bride. And, Father God, we know that even today you are here with us. Holy Spirit, that you are with us. That you are here. That you have empowered each and every person. And Father God, I pray, Lord, would you stir in our hearts this thing of being devoted to you and what it looks like? I pray, Lord, where, and I pray for myself as well, where we've lost this intense effort to pursue you, where we've lost our persistence, where we've grown tired and weary, where we just haven't felt like it. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you come, would you empower us, would you embolden us, Father? Father, I pray, Lord, that despite difficulty, despite the things that we want to do, despite our comforts and the things that we are looking for and our convenience, Father God, would we serve you first? Father, I just repent of the times that we've removed you as king of our hearts and we've put ourselves there for our own pleasure and our own things, Father. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come bring healing? Would you come bring forgiveness? Would you come bring restoration? Would you just shower us with your grace? Just bless you, Father. We're going to do communion now. and I've asked Lynette just to lead us in a song of worship. But the table's here.